Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at lives of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, we talked about the Norman invasion and conquest of Sicily and southern Italy, led mostly, although not initially, by the efforts of Robert Giscard. After his death in 1085, his son Roger Borsa was left as Duke of Calabria and Apulia, while his younger brother Roger was in charge of most of Sicily. This episode, we'll look at Roger of Hauteville's son, Roger II. He consolidated all of the Norman holdings in Sicily and southern Italy into one united and long-lasting kingdom. His ability as an administrator and statesman helped propel him past the other Norman leaders to become the first king of the Normans in Italy. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com and if you leave a comment on iTunes or donate on the website, you'll be entered into the drawing for the House of Savoy replica coin and oath. Details are in the season opener. You can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 3, Episode 5, The Story of the Norman Conquest of Italy and Sicily, Part 2, Roger II, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Roger I of Hauteville had a few small claims in Italy, but he hadn't even quite finished taking the island of Sicily when his brother Giscard died. As mentioned last episode, the siege of Syracuse wrapped up in 1086, and Malta was his by 1091. He was involved in helping out some of his nephews on the mainland when they were kicked out of their ducal thrones, but never really had an opportunity to try to add to his own territory. In Sicily, though, Roger had no real rivals. After taking cities, his people were generally happy. They had freedom to worship, be they Latin Christian like him, Eastern Orthodox like most Sicilian Christians where he arrived, or Muslim like the majority of those on the island. Greek, Latin, and Arabic were all official languages of his court. Roger, in fact, employed a large number of what would be recorded as Arabs or Saracens in his army but a lot of them were probably local Sicilian and some North African troops commanded by Muslim commanders. In Italy, he knew he could count on their loyalty because he paid these men, because he treated them well. He wasn't interested in a crusade on the island, and he didn't force conversions. According to Edmund Curtis, quote, In effect, it was as Muslims that these hired troops were most valuable to the count. As such, they were absolutely devoted to him and, ignorant of papal menace or Latin politics, formed a standing army whose loyalty was beyond every doubt, unquote. Of course, Sicily didn't remain ethnically imbalanced against the Normans. Italians eventually made their way to the island and did become the dominant people there. But that was after Roger's time. He died on June 22, 1101, at the age of 70, he was the last survivor of the more than half a dozen sons of Tancred of Hauteville who made their way down to Italy. Count Roger had a few sons himself, but upon his death, his eight-year-old son, Simon, became the Count of Sicily. 
Simon's mother Adelaide became regent, and she seemed to do a pretty good job of it, although we don't have a ton of details. There was a revolt of at least some barons in Sicily, and she was able to end it. It was not without bloodshed, but it helped secure her son's authority. She also moved the capital out of Roger's fortresses, first to Messina in northeast Sicily, followed by a move to the cosmopolitan city of Palermo in the northwest. The timing of this move coincided with the death of Simon in 1105, which left his younger brother Roger as the new count. This younger brother, Roger II, was born December 22, 1095, when his dad was in his 60s. Count Roger had inherited some of Tancred's fertility, it seems. Moving to Palermo as a 10-year-old, young Roger spent his adolescence in one of the most diverse cities in the world. Greeks and Muslim officials dominated the court even as Norman barons held power, and he saw the advantage of keeping these administrators with experience from the two most advanced empires of the day. We don't know much about Roger II under his mother's regency. There aren't really a lot of records of her, and at the time, according to Curtis, quote, the real drama of the Hauteville House was being played in Apulia, where Giscard's duchy was going to pieces, and in the Holy Land, unquote. The Hauteville's had also found themselves, at least some of them, as part of the Crusades and were getting positions of power in the Crusader kingdoms as well. But in 1111, when Roger II was about 16 years old, Roger Borsa died and was succeeded by his son William, also 16 years old, as Duke of Apulia and Calabria. Calabria, remember, is the toe of the boot of Italy, and Apulia was the heel and a bit up more to what might be called the Achilles tendon of Italy if we just want to beat this metaphor to death. But William Borsa, while an able soldier and promising young leader, was even less respected by his vassals than his father was, and the whole of the region was disunited at best, warring against each other at worst. A year later, Roger turned 17, was knighted, and fully became the Count of Sicily, Count Roger II. The young count had many advisors, and many of these were, as I said, men from the non-Latin Christian world. One, George of Antioch, was his greatest admiral and led his naval forces throughout his reign. George was titled Magnus Amiratus, meaning Prime Emir, a Latinized version of the Arab title Amir al-Umara. He was also called Amiratus Amiratorum, or Amir of Amirs. Amiratus continued to be used as a title for naval commanders in the Mediterranean, and eventually evolved into the word admiral. George had served as the financial minister for Azirid Prince, meaning he spoke Arabic in addition to Greek, and understood the way they ran their government. After his master died, he wasn't sure of his safety in Tunisia under a new prince, so he stole a ship and set out for Sicily, where he was welcomed. Perhaps it was the intimate knowledge of the Ziridites to the south that some of these men had, or perhaps it was nothing more than the most logical target, both geographically and politically. But Roger, not long after taking power, turned his attention in that direction. The Zirid dynasty was being hemmed in from the east by the Fatimids in Egypt, and on the west by the growing Berber Hamadite kingdom. In 1118, under the invitation of a Zirid usurper, Roger sent a Norman fleet to the city of Gabus in Tunisia. 
It was unsuccessful in its attack, and his fleet was driven off. In 1123, this usurper died, and a new heir, only 12 years old, took over. Roger, now in his 20s, saw another opportunity and launched another invasion, a much larger one. George and another senior commander, Christodoulos, were sent at the head of a large invasion force, 300 ships, 30,000 men. They immediately took a fortress and were primed to begin a war of conquest. But the new heir, Hassan, was able to rally his own troops and sneak up on the majority of the Norman troops that were outside the fortress. They were sent fleeing back to their ships. The fleet tried to again disembark the troops, but was kept from doing so by the Zerid defenders. The Normans remaining in the fortress launched a desperate final attack to break out of the siege they were now under, but were slaughtered. Only about a third of the fleet returned after a storm further battered the ships, and the attack was a complete disaster. Roger would have better luck the next time he attacked North Africa, but that wouldn't be until more than two decades later. Instead, at this point, affairs in Italy became of higher importance to Roger II. William Borsa, Giscard's grandson, was again facing rebellion from his vassals and came to Roger begging for aid. He had been driven out of one of his towns by the rebellious Count Jordan, who insulted him gravely by saying, I will cut your cloak short for you before plundering the city. This must have been a really mean thing for someone to say back then. I don't know. Young Roger responded by sending aid to his nephew in the form of gold and 600 knights. In exchange, William gave up his claim, inherited on down from Giscard, of half of Palermo and Messina in Sicily, as well as Calabria in southern Italy. Now, the claims to Palermo and Messina were probably more honorific than practical. Everyone knew that Roger was in charge of Sicily. But Calabria? This gave Roger full control over mainland territory, with William as his suzerain, of course. And it also gave Roger a legal leg to stand on if he wanted to claim more mainland territories when perhaps the duchy split apart or in the surely unlikely event that Duke William died without an heir. Then, in 1127, 30-year-old Duke William died without an heir. He had been almost completely unable to prevent his vassals from rebelling, raiding his towns, and generally behaving like, well, like everyone in the Mediterranean said Normans behave. He was a competent soldier, and he was liked by his people. He was remembered as a kind, humble, pious man, but he wasn't gifted enough to hold the territory together. It's really not clear what William intended for the succession of his territory. If you remember from last episode, Giscard's younger son, Roger Borsa, outmaneuvered his older son, Bohemond, to take the duchy. Bohemond eventually became the Prince of Antioch in the Holy Land, as well as the Prince of Taranto, an area in Apulia which made him a vassal of his younger brother, Roger Borsa. Bohemond's son, Bohemond II, had a decent claim on the entire duchy. One contemporary historian said that Bohemond II and William Borsa had sworn that if either died childless, they would give their territory to the other, creating a country with lands in southern Italy, Sicily, and the Holy Land. They could have called it Norman Phoenicia. Now, friends of Rome said that he bequeathed the territory to the Pope, 
and there were plenty of descendants of those Hauteville's who had made their way to Italy who had claims. William may well have uttered to the strongest as his last words, because southern Italy was then plunged into 13 years of war to determine the rightful duke. Count Roger II of Sicily jumped at the chance to unite all of the Norman conquests in Italy and Sicily as his own. He was already recognized by everyone as master of Sicily, and by some as the master of Calabria, albeit under the sovereignty of whoever became duke, and while many did not see his mainland claims as legitimate, he was ready to change some minds. His first step after hearing of the death of William was to sail seven ships into the harbor in Salerno, probably the wealthiest and most important city south of Naples on the peninsula. Salerno was just north of Calabria, where Roger already had a strong claim. It was the capital of an independent principality that Giscard had absorbed. In the chaos of the moment, there were factions in Salerno that wanted to revive Lombard independence, others with loyalty to the Normans. He called the leaders of both parties to his ships, asserted his claim as a rightful lord, and promised they would be nearly autonomous if they swore allegiance to him. This autonomy included not having to fight for him any further than two days' march from the city, and that the citizens of Salerno could occupy its castle themselves. They agreed, and Salerno would henceforth be his capital on Italy, second only to Palermo. He soon gained Amalfi, north up the coast from Salerno, on similar terms, and hence was able to claim the loyalty of everything on the western side of the peninsula that was south of Naples. That same year, 1127, Pope Honorius II entered Benevento in late summer. Benevento was not far from Naples. It was in the interior, not on the coast. It was the capital of one of the many duchies, principalities, counties, or whatever made up southern Italy. There, the Pope steadfastly refused to meet with Roger or acknowledge him as the new Duke. He didn't want to give Roger authority, because Roger was already seen as powerful, having united Sicily with Calabria at least. It wasn't that he had an issue with Roger per se at this point. He just had an issue with a fully united Norman kingdom to his south. Better a bunch of smaller ones that were rivals, but all owed their allegiance to Rome. Roger had his semi-legitimate claim to Apulia. The last thing the Holy See wanted was to let him have it. Roger sent an army to, let's say, convince it a pope, but nothing came of it. The pope felt compelled to stay in Benevento, but eventually made his way to Troia, not far, and closer to the Adriatic, before beginning to create a league of ordinary gentlemen to take on Roger. The Legione de Doom included, besides the Pope, the various princes, counts, and vassals in the region that were themselves unwilling to allow Roger to swallow them up into a kingdom he was clearly trying to create. Some of the bigger names include Grimold, the Prince of Bari, that Adriatic seaport with eyes towards Constantinople, Reynolf, the Count of Avellino, and Tancred of Conversano, who was one of Giscard's grandnephews. Pope Honorius went up to Capua, north of Naples, to make an alliance with Richard Dregnot's grandson, who had just inherited the principality from his father. Richard Dregnot, you may recall, was one of the commanders at the Battle of Civitate, himself the son of the first real successful Norman adventurer in Italy. 
This added another important name to the crew, and really, I'm hoping we can try to stop there with the introduction of new Italian characters. Roger returned to Palermo for the winter, because really, who wouldn't want to go to Palermo in the winter? In 1128, he crossed over from Messina with Norman knights and Arab infantry. He quickly marched east and took the, I don't know, Arch of Italy, Instep of Italy, regions called Basilicata and Lucania. Look at the maps I have posted on almostforgotten.squarespace.com. It'll help. He then went into Apulia, the heel of Italy, which he claimed was already his thanks to William's promises and took Taranto, a large seaport on the western side of the heel facing the Ionian Sea. Bohemond was prince, but he was probably an absentee leader, spending his time in Antioch, where he was also prince. Roger then crossed the heel to Brindisi on the Adriatic. He now essentially controlled everything south of Salerno and Brindisi. Turning north, Roger slowed his march as his enemies came from Bari to meet him. He waited at a river crossing as Honorius and Robert II of Capua readied to do battle. But Roger stalled. He opened negotiations, and he waited. His army was well supplied and well accustomed to the southern summer sun. While the coalition sweated it out, Roger brought men back and forth to nearby mountains to cool off and keep in high spirits. Finally, with the feudal lords threatening to abandon the now 40-day wait, the Pope acquiesced. He offered Roger the dukedom as long as he promised to leave Capua alone. And so, on August 23, 1128, the Pope gave Roger official recognition as the Duke of Apulia. This meant Roger was a duke, not a count, so he became, you know, more important. And the Pope, so, you know, God, recognized him as the man in charge of Sicily, Calabria, and Apulia. Not bad. But this doesn't make a 13-year war that I had mentioned earlier. Apulia wasn't going to give itself up as easily as the Pope would. And Rainulf and Grimold didn't necessarily feel that the fighting was over. Next year, in 1129, Roger had to bring 9,000 troops back to Apulia to try to subdue it once again. Brindisi was in open revolt and was able to withstand a siege. Roger captured other towns. George of Antioch brought ships to blockade Bari. Everyone, including Rainulf, gave up when Roger offered fiefdoms for each of them. He had to return in the spring of 1130, but by the middle of that year, southern Italy was his, for the moment. Even Naples offered some sort of tribute, although they technically were a semi-independent city-state that owed their allegiance to the Byzantines. Roger had essentially consolidated his duchy, not all of southern Italy, but Sicily, Calabria, and Apulia, plus some additional cities, and he and his advisors felt it really ought to be a kingdom at this point. Palermo would make a nice capital, and there was no need to pretend it was part of the Holy Roman Empire or the Papal Lands, or the Byzantine Empire. Because it wasn't, it was independent. His next goal was to get the remaining Norman lands into his growing duchy, and to make it all a kingdom. A disputed papal election after the death of Honorius in 1130 gave him an opening to get that crown. A small group of cardinals met and elected Pope Innocent II, 
while the rest of the cardinals elected Anacletus II. They were both consecrated as pope on the same day, in February of 1130. Anacletus had the support of the Roman magnates and the people, so he was able to keep Rome, while Innocent had to find somewhere else to hang, and fled to his hometown of Pisa. Both had claims to legitimacy, but Roger saw an opportunity with Anacletus, currently invested in Rome. He offered to support the new pope as long as he gave him a crown. On September 27th, Pope Anacletus named Roger king of Sicily, Calabria, and Apulia, expanding this over most of the rest of southern Italy as well. Roger held a ceremony in Palermo on Christmas 1130, where he was crowned. This is considered the formal beginning of the Kingdom of Sicily, a kingdom formed out of recent Norman conquests of Lombard, Byzantine, and Muslim lands that had been in almost constant flux for five or so centuries. After Roger, it essentially didn't change borders for the next 700 years. The problem for Roger was that while Anacletus was safe in Rome, or hanging out in Sicily, Innocent was doing a tour of France and Germany, garnering support. By early 1131, the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor both officially supported Pope Innocent. This, of course, gave the feudal states in southern Italy, especially Capua and Apulia, plenty of incentive to rise up. But with the lack of actual troops marching from north of the Alps to help out, Roger quickly put down most of the revolts. Reynolf was one of the feudal lords that rose up, and King Roger was able to take his city of Avellino, but Reynolf wasn't there, he had left his brother in charge. Grimold of Bari also declared he was no longer under Roger's power, until Roger besieged Bari and, in June 1132, retook it, sending Grimold off to Sicily. Conversano, under Tancred, also rebelled, but Roger was able to take that city back as well, forcing Tancred to swear he'd go to the Holy Land and fight there instead. Reynolf was his most formidable remaining foe, and he was able to gather Robert of Capua's forces to first take Benevento. Roger wasn't sure he had the manpower to take them on directly, so instead, he headed for Nocera. This was Robert's primary town outside of the city of Capua itself, and taking that would be a big blow. On July 24, 1132, the two armies, Rogers and Roberts, royal and papal, loyal Norman and rebel Norman, faced each other down outside of Nochera. Rogers' knights went in first, and they were able to drive the first line of Capuani into the river, and many perished there. But most escaped to the plains nearby. The second line of them was more resolute. They were mounted knights, not infantry and they watched as the first line fled past them, but still they charged the royalist forces. Roger had the upper hand, though, and his troops looked like they were going to have the day, until Reynolf joined the battle with 500 of his own knights, hitting Roger's troops in the flank. This in turn helped rally Robert's men. The combination was too much, even though Roger put himself in serious danger trying to rally his now fleeing troops but they knew it was too late and ignored their king. He fled the field for Salerno, with only a small guard and the enemy on his heels. From Curtis, quote, Four knights only were with him, 
Raynal followed hard behind. At sunset, the king galloped into Salerno, and the gates were slammed behind him in the face of the pursuers. It was Reynolds' victory, and it was complete, unquote. Complete that day, sure. Roger was badly defeated in his first major battle, but he still had money and loyal territory. Apulia, though, once again went up in full revolt. Tancred of Conversano, the one who promised to go fight in the Holy Land, hadn't quite left yet. Even Grimold somehow made his way back from Sicily, and the whole rebel band was getting back together. Roger made his way from Salerno east into Apulia with his army again soon after, replenished with new Muslim infantry and regrouped knights, and he began retaking towns. But another disaster hit Roger when he was there, as Robert of Capua and his army marched down to Salerno and besieged the city. It resisted for a while, but yielded in exchange for allowing 400 knights loyal to Roger safe passage out of the city. The city's chancellor moved into a hillside fortress above the city and held out, but Roger's mainland capital was now in rebel hands. Italy was prime for the Pope and Lothair, the brand spanking new Holy Roman Emperor, to march down south of Rome and finally push Roger completely off the peninsula. They worked their way down into northern Italy, and by spring of 1133 had made it to Rome for Lothair's official coronation. But much of the Eternal City was still loyal to Anacletus, and rather than attack and besiege Rome, Lothair and Innocent just held the ceremony in a different church than St. Peter's. Meanwhile, Roger, who had wintered again in Sicily, returned to the mainland around the same time. He went to Apulia, and this time he was doing the whole no more Mr. Nice Guy thing. He had, in the past, been rather forgiving after taking towns. Not so anymore. He killed many in Venosa, a regional capital, and put it to the torch. The old pattern of sieges, rather than army versus army battle, restarted, and Roger was very good at this. He retook Troia and burned much of it as well. Town after town fell to Roger, but he was merely taking back Apulia, while the rebels were still in strength further north, and the Holy Roman Emperor was in Rome planning to wipe him off the map. Then, in the fall of 1133, Lothar and the large German army went back north. He was in Mainz by October, dealing with insurrection up there. With his disappearance, Roger was able to take back more and more. Apulia was ruthlessly subdued. Reynolf and Robert scrambled to drum up more support, but couldn't really do much more than try to hold the line. Roger returned to Palermo again that winter, and left his capital in the spring of 1134 with 60 ships. Now outnumbered significantly, Reynolf submitted to Roger, and the two embraced. Reynolf was given some territory in exchange. Roger entered Capua and sent Robert fleeing. The Duke of Naples also submitted to him. By the end of 1134, the revolt, which started out so promising for the rebels, ended up with them all submitting to Roger. They all acknowledged him as a king, however reluctantly. Several, such as Robert of Capua, fled to the Holy Roman Empire and would remain there, constantly trying to convince the Germans to oppose Roger's every move. But if you paid enough attention to do the math, this is like seven years of Italian chaos, not 13. We've got some more to go. But for now, Roger had time to focus on the South as well. North Africa, 
at least the part close to Sicily, was kind of a mess. As the Hamadite dynasty centered in Bougie, today's Bajaya, Algeria, was invading, the Ziridi prince, based in Madia, Tunisia, began courting potential partners. When the prince's enemies mobilized forces and began to directly threaten him, he appealed to Roger for help. George of Antioch came with a fleet and relieved Madia, which was under siege. This essentially ended Zirid independence, and they became a client to Roger. Roger's forces followed this up by taking Jerba, an island further south down the Tunisian coast. It had been a haunt of pirates nominally tied to the Zirids, who were a nuisance to Sicily. Jerba, you may recall, was one of the bases of Hayred and Barbarossa, featured in episode 9 of season 1. The Gulf of Gabus, which Jerba overlooked, became a base of operations for Norman ships, who often acted a heck of a lot like the pirates they displaced. This would be the extent of Roger's moves in North Africa, for the time being. In 1135, Roger's wife Elvira died, and he was apparently upset enough by this to disappear from everything for a few days. As he mourned for those few days at least, people began to believe maybe he had died as well. His enemies in the north of Italy began to round up allies, including Eastern Romans and Holy Romans, but Lothar again was slow to move. Robert made his way down and tried to retake Capua, although he was unsuccessful. The city of Naples, with its now long history of independence, became the center of the uprising. Roger returned to the mainland in early summer of 1135, and his old enemy Rainulf was again among his foes. Rainulf held a versa, but he fled as Roger approached. The king razed the city, although it was soon rebuilt. The rebel allies from Pisa the major power of the March of Tuscany, a province of the Holy Roman Empire, attacked Amalfi in August. They sacked the city, essentially ending the relevance of one of its maritime rivals. As the Pisans tried to relieve the siege of Ravello next, Roger and his 7,000 soldiers attacked. The victory was large for Roger. Pisa might have had more than 10,000 killed or captured. Naples was cut off and surrounded and Roger just needed time to take it for himself. Before again returning to Sicily for the winter, he installed close relatives through southern Italy as his new vassals. His men were now the leaders in Apulia and Aversa. No more would other Normans be able to work against him as his vassals. He named his son Roger III heir to the throne, as well as Duke of Apulia. His son Alfonso became Prince of Capua, Once again, though, the Holy Roman Empire, with duchies and marches in northern Italy and claims to southern Italy, decided they should jump back into the fray. They began the march down in late summer of 1136, and Pope Innocent was with them. But the journey was a hard one, and Lothar had to subdue towns in northern Italy that were only nominally part of the empire. They crisscrossed the northern provinces from east to west, then back east again, before splitting the army in two in early 1137. An army under the emperor's son-in-law was ordered to put Innocent back in Rome, then keep marching south down the western end of the peninsula, and then back north of the eastern end to link up with the emperor in Apulia. Apulia was still not in love with Roger, especially after all the raising and punishing he had done there. When the emperor got there, 
he was able to take town after town. Robert of Capua returned to his city on the west coast, and then had to pay off his Bavarian escort to keep them from sacking it. But the two imperial armies eventually linked up in Bari, and continued picking off Roger's territories piece by piece. Roger didn't directly engage with the invading army. There were small skirmishes here and there, but once again, he waited until the heat of southern Italy did its job. They did leave Apulia and went after Salerno, his capital in the west. The siege lasted nearly a month, in July and August, and Robert of Capua and his imperial German allies received aid from Pisa to blockade the port. As they saw siege engines being built and the Pisans ready to sack the city, it surrendered to the emperor. The emperor allowed the city commanders safe passage, and the Pisans were outraged. Denied their plunder, they soon withdrew back to Pisa, instead of doing what Robert of Capua had originally planned, carrying him to Palermo to finally oust Roger. With Apulia retaken, and even Salerno swearing loyalty to the emperor, the Germans were satisfied. They returned north and invested Reynolf as Duke of Apulia. Then they left him 800 German knights to defend his new duchy. Roger had resisted getting into a direct battle with this massive army, and he lost most of his Italian territory outside of the mountainous region of Calabria for it. But with the disappearance of the Germans, he returned to Salerno in October in full force and retook it. Robert again fled from Capua, and Roger was able to retake that as well. In the seesaw that was southern Italy, Roger had the upper hand as soon as the Holy Roman Emperor was north of Rome and he quickly reincorporated the western portions of his mainland kingdom. Next step was to deal with Reynolf, and in late October, the two met again face to face, outside Regnano in northern Apulia. Roger III led the first charge in at the rebel army, and was successful, driving back the center. But when King Roger led his men in, he was pushed back. Unlike in the Battle of Nocera, This time, Roger II may have been among those fleeing, as his troops panicked and were completely routed. Sergius, the longtime Duke of Naples who had finally truly submitted to Roger, was killed in the battle. Defeated again by Reynolf, he again retreated to Salerno, but again, he quickly recovered. Apulia was in open rebellion under Reynolf, but the rest of southern Italy, barring a few towns here and there, was still his after the battle. Just like the last time he defeated Roger, Reynolf just couldn't figure out how to capitalize on his victory. Roger, meanwhile, began negotiating with Pope Innocent. He didn't recognize him as Pope, but he communicated that he would be interested in hearing from his supporters as to why he was the real Papa. He returned to Palermo in the winter, and a conference was scheduled for the upcoming months. This open line of communication probably softened up Innocent a tiny bit, which was good, because soon after, in January of 1138, Roger's Pope, Anacletus II, died. His loyal cardinals quickly elected a successor, but this was not to be, and the man soon abdicated. Then, in April of 1139, Reynolf fell ill and died. The people mourned his death, the duke was well regarded in Apulia. Roger wasted no time 
and was in Salerno by May, moving with an army east soon after that. Rainulf didn't leave a complete vacuum behind, though. His brother, as well as Robert of Capua, led an army south from Rome with Pope Innocent in tow. They met and negotiated for a week, but got nowhere. Innocent wanted Robert to have Capua back, and Roger would have none of it. Finally, disgusted at the lack of progress in the negotiations, Roger left in a huff with his army, probably to go besiege some town. Robert marched towards Capua to retake his inheritance for the hundredth time, and right into Roger's trap. Roger had drawn his enemies out, and then wheeled around, putting them in an indefensible position. They began a retreat towards a better spot, but before they got there, they were ambushed by Roger III with a thousand knights. Robert of Capua, as well as Reynolf's brother, fled, but the Pope remained in his tent. Roger II waited the Pope out, or insulted him, or begged for an audience, depending on the source. Eventually, Innocent had no choice, and he gave Roger everything he wanted. The paperwork was drawn up, and Roger and his sons knelt before the Pope, the Pope that everybody claimed was the Pope, swearing loyalty to him. The Pope signed the Treaty of Mignano, naming Roger Rex Siciliae Ducatus Apuliae et Principatus Capuae, King of Sicily, Duke of Apulia, and Prince of Capua. Legally, he was now a king. He owed allegiance to nobody, although technically that was because he swore allegiance to Rome. 1139 wasn't over, and that year, Roger also incorporated Naples more tightly into his kingdom. When the last surviving Duke of Naples from a 200-year-old dynasty had died at Regnano, the magnates in the city weren't able to agree upon a new leader. So the city submitted to him completely, and he named his son Alfonso as the new duke. He then returned to Apulia and retook almost all of it with relative ease, now that there weren't any rebel leaders in the area. Bari resisted for the longest time, and withstood a two-month attack, until the 30 siege towers Roger built was too much for it, and it too surrendered. He returned to Palermo at the end of 1139 for the winter, more secure than before, with papal recognition from, you know, the actual pope, with his most successful battlefield adversary, Reynolf, dead, and with the other surviving rebel leaders in exile. The 13 years of chaos in the Mezzogiorno after the death of William Borsa was finally over. The following year, 1140, the king spent the first few months preparing to issue a code of laws for his kingdom, with the help of George of Antioch, who, besides a great admiral, was a former minister in an Arab court and had Byzantine heritage. In the summer, he went to Ariano, a town near Benevento in central Italy, and he made public a series of 44 laws called the Assizes of Ariano. They were based on Justinian's Byzantine laws, Muslim laws, and Franco-Norman laws, culminating in a set of precepts designed to strengthen feudalism and establish the bureaucracy in the Kingdom of Sicily. It's specified that the king is the only one who can create laws. It says that everyone, no matter their religion, is equal under the law. But these are the things in Roger's interest that we shouldn't be terribly surprised about. He was interested in absolute power, but he was savvy enough to see the advantages of a diverse country. 
The laws themselves, though, were the first in Europe of their kind, outside of the Eastern Roman Empire and Muslim-controlled Spain. The systematic compilation of laws was new to the region, and it gave some insight into the aspirational beliefs of Roger. He was not a king of some small territory smashed up against great powers. He wanted Sicily to be a great power. This was done in conjunction with his issuance of a new coin, which was universal throughout his kingdom. It was called the ducat, probably from the word ducatus, which was written on the coin in dedication to Christ. Yes, he was a king, but the original coin was actually for him and his son Roger III, who ruled the Duchy of Apulia. It signaled the beginning of Europe's return to a more standardized currency using precious metals, and paved the way for the more ubiquitous Venetian gold ducat a century later. Soon after this effort to stabilize his regime, Roger had enough security in Italy, at least for the moment, to try to expand his North African holdings. With his fleet no longer completely occupied to his north, he sent a force to Tripoli in Libya in the summer of 1143, but this attack wasn't successful and his men returned to their ships. Back over in Italy in 1144, Roger was looking to shore up his northern border. He took the seaside city of Gaeta, an important port in between Naples and Rome, loyal to the Pope, not to the Kingdom of Sicily. He was basically attacking a papal client state. Gaeta, like Naples and Amalfi, was once an independent seafaring republic, and perhaps, if given time and freedom from Roger's intervention, it would have become as prosperous as Genoa or Venice. Instead, Roger had set the northwestern frontier of his kingdom, one that wouldn't change for nearly eight centuries. A real truce was established with Rome in 1144. Good news for Rome, maybe good news for Roger, although things were going very well for him. But terrible news also hit that year when Alfonso, his second son, and a gallant soldier died. It was probably during the campaign against the papal forces, and he was succeeded as Prince of Capua and Duke of Naples by his brother William. The truce with Rome helped Roger focus on his North African aims, and in June of 1146, he again sent George of Antioch, this time with 200 ships, to Tripoli. There were competing influences within the city and infighting, which made the conquest short work. An ancient economic center, another one of those important cities in the Muslim world, was now Roger's. Unlike that Tunisian vassal state he claimed and occasionally raided, Roger offered amnesty to those who fought against him, and he let Tripoli just go about its business as long as it paid him tribute. He of course left a garrison of Norman troops, but they were relatively peaceful about it after the initial conquest, to the point that other local Muslim princes who were trying to avoid being swallowed up by the other encroaching Muslim kingdoms came to Roger to ask for help. That same year, the Pope officially launched the Second Crusade. Roger, whose kingdom had a significant Muslim population, wasn't that interested in whipping up tensions in his own country. He didn't link his attack on North Africa, where he was allied with some Muslims, with the Crusades. He did, though, try to convince the French, his one major ally in Europe at the time, to pay for him to use his large navy to ferry their knights to the Holy Land. But they took the overland route through Hungary and then Constantinople. 
German and Byzantine coziness during the Crusades was not a good sign for Roger. They both laid some claim to southern Italy and were his seemingly eternal enemies. For Roger, getting these two together would be extraordinarily dangerous. He had visions of Greek and Venetian ships landing German knights and Byzantine soldiers on the Adriatic shores of Italy, so he decided he should probably act before they could do so. He sent George of Antioch with a fleet that took Corfu, the large Greek island across from Apulia, as Giscard had once done. They raided the Greek coast all the way around to Athens and Euboea. George sacked Corinth and Thebes before returning to Sicily. One legend, which is probably just a legend, is that the silk-making industry in Palermo started when captives from Corinth were put to work in Roger's capital. In 1148, Roger, flushed with his victories across the Adriatic, took more territory in Tunisia. In June, a 250-ship fleet sailed to Madia to take on Roger's vassal, the Zirid prince. He was in the unfortunate position of being one of the weakest local rulers, and when Roger betrayed him, there wasn't enough time to secure an ally. The prince was able to see the massive fleet in time to see that he was helpless and fled the city, which George entered unmolested a few days later. He found most of the treasury, distributed some of this to the locals, and then appointed a new local cadi or magistrate. He quickly captured the other Zirid dependencies, again leaving a garrison of Norman troops while elevating a local to actually run the city. He was neither brutal nor repressive to the people in the region. Curtis quotes a Tunisian historian, writing centuries later, that Roger, quote, restored both the cities of Zawila and Almadia, furnishing capital for the merchants, did good to the poor, confided the administration of justice to a cadi acceptable to the people, and ordered well the government of those two cities, unquote. George of Antioch, who had served under Muslim rulers in North Africa in the past, not only was the admiral who conquered these lands, he was probably also part of why Roger was able to rule them with such a deft hand. He was an invaluable addition to the Norman kingdom. His most audacious move was to actually sail up the Bosporus and shoot flaming arrows into the Roman imperial palace, highlighting the weakness of the Byzantine navy and no doubt securing his own legacy. He probably died, or at least retired completely, because we never hear about him again, around 1150. While George and Roger were successfully not crusading, just conquering North Africa, the Second Crusade had turned into almost a complete failure for the Latins. The Byzantines, though, didn't really get too involved. So once the French and Holy Roman and whatever else Western knights made their way past Constantinople, Emperor Manuel Comnenos turned his attention to the pesky Normans. He enlisted the help of Venice, who would become the de facto navy for the empire, and together they began to respond to Roger's invasion of Greece in 1148, although it would be a year before Corfu was back in Byzantine hands. As the crusade failed on almost every facet and the Westerners began returning home, Conrad, the king of the Germans, stopped by Constantinople on his way back and made a deal with Manuel Comnenos to stick it to Roger. Nothing came of it at the moment, though. The Germans had been worn down by the Crusades, the Byzantines by retaking Corfu, as well as troubles on other borders, 
and their Venetian allies were unreliable. The Venetians didn't see much to gain other than money, and they weren't going to just ferry Byzantine and German soldiers around for free, so they focused their energies elsewhere. But by 1151, the Germans and the Byzantines, still bent on divvying up Lower Italy at least, finally were ready to really get their acts together. They built a coalition that, along with Roger's exiled Norman enemies, would be able to crush him. Meanwhile, Roger's one major ally, Louis VII of France, was not going to help him out at all. He was dealing with his own serious internal conflicts. But in early 1152, Conrad of Germany died. The new king, Frederick, was soon occupied with keeping the vassals in Germany in check. And while he certainly was willing to lead an army down the Italian peninsula, he wasn't yet in any position to do so. As things were looking a bit rocky for the Kingdom of Sicily, in February of 1154, Roger died in Palermo at the age of 58. The kingdom he created was inherited by his son, William I. What Roger had created, though, was secure enough to withstand the onslaught by the Germans and the Byzantines, which came soon after William took the throne. Bari was retaken by the Byzantines, and Apulia rose up again, as did Capua. But thanks to everything that Roger had put in place, William was able to put down the invasions and revolts. The Germans left the southern part of the peninsula, and Sicily demolished the Byzantine forces, to the point that Constantinople was happy to negotiate a long-lasting peace treaty. The Pope, meanwhile, whose allies had withered away as he faced an oncoming Sicilian army, signed the Treaty of Benevento in June of 1156. It represented a full peace with and recognition by the Holy See, and this one wound up being long-term. The Hauteville's ruled the kingdom for another generation, but by the dawn of the 13th century, they had married into the Holy Roman Empire. After Roger's grandson, King William II, died without issue, it wasn't long before Sicily passed to the House of Hohenstaufen. Frederick II, King of Sicily, an eventual Holy Roman Emperor, ruled for 30 years and helped lead a resurgence of the kingdom. The kingdom of Sicily would later be divided in two. Sicily rose up in revolt against its ruler in the late 1200s. It was independent for a while before being absorbed into the Spanish crown. Southern Italy, though, remained united with itself, something that seemed impossible before Giscard and Roger and was known as the Kingdom of Naples. But, because the King of Sicily was left in charge of the Kingdom of Naples when Sicily revolted, he always officially called it the Kingdom of Sicily. So they were often referred to as both Sicilies, or the two Sicilies. Although they were usually ruled by larger powers, as subordinate kingdoms, they maintained their territorial integrities established by Roger. And, in the parlance of European politics, despite dominance by other powers, they both remained kingdoms. Before Napoleon, the two kingdoms were both Spanish territories, administered separately. After 1850, they were at long last fully reunited as the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. This lasted a half a century, until local uprisings in Palermo gave Giuseppe Garibaldi an excuse to invade. 
Under the watchful eye of the king of Piedmont Sardinia, of the House of Savoy, Garibaldi helped join the southern kingdom with the north, creating the Kingdom of Italy in 1861. Roger II had not only united Giscard's conquest, he united all of the Norman states into a kingdom. It stretched from just south of Rome, through Naples and Salerno, to Bari, into Apulia, across to Libya in Tripoli, west along the African coast, past Tunis, with all of Sicily and, of course, Palermo as its shining capital. Over the centuries, it usually wasn't joined together, and it usually wasn't independent, but nonetheless, it was a kingdom that lasted until modern day. Roger II created a kingdom that was powerful enough to become a magnet for scientists and philosophers of his era. He wanted to hear from and speak with the learned men of his time, and was a great patron of the arts. You can still see the fingerprints of his reign in Palermo and other parts of Sicily in the unique but familiar-looking Norman-Arab-Byzantine architecture, and yes, that's the actual term. It is possible that Sicily was perhaps the first place that squinches those architectural features to support domes that may have originated in the Palace of Ardashir were introduced into Western Europe. Squinches soon became a feature of Romanesque architecture of the period. Thanks for listening to another episode of Squinchcast, which... Oh, sorry, back to Roger II. He also sponsored a famous Arab geographer, Muhammad al-Idrisi, who spent years creating a map of the world that wasn't surpassed in accuracy for three centuries. He was much more of a statesman than a true conqueror and general, not the battle-hardened warrior like Giscard. But he had his share of conquests because he was an incredibly gifted leader and was a man who believed in justice above all else. Curtis wrote, quote, He was everywhere more feared than beloved, a stern lover of what was just. He hated all who spoke lies. He faithfully paid his soldiers their hire and never forejudged a case. Subtle in mind, great in counsel, possessed of the keenest understanding, he was always ready with wise answers to rash talk, unquote. He could be cruel to his enemies if he saw it as just, but he was a man before his time when it came to his subjects. He was an adamant believer of feudalism and the superiority of the noble class, but he followed his own father's lead in what seems obvious to us today. He was respectful of his subjects' beliefs. He didn't try to convert his Muslim or his Eastern Orthodox Christian subjects. Rather, he used their soldiers, their sailors, and their laws to make his kingdom stronger. While this tolerance disappeared in later generations under the Holy Roman Empire, it was part of the reason Roger was able to make a kingdom out of a dozen or so duchies and principalities. Beginning as mercenaries hired to wage war for various dukes and princes in the chaos of southern Italy, the Normans created a kingdom that lasted eight centuries. What Robert Giscard and Roger II started became an integral part of medieval and Renaissance Europe and remained so until the unification of Italy in the 19th century. Next episode, we start a multi-part series on what might be considered the first revolution of the early modern era. Thanks for listening.